not the worst introduction I've ever had, but it's in the top ten. So, it's good to be here. My name's Steve. I'm an alcoholic. I, uh, I enjoyed that countdown. I was at a meeting one time, and they asked this guy, they said, uh, how long have you been sober? And he said, a long time, 30 days. <laughs> I, I can certainly identify with that. You know, if, if you do anything like this, you don't, you don't get to pick your host. And um, uh, I mean, I'm going to do the best I can here tonight. I hope someone will be helping. I'll, I know that if, if, if at the bottom line of anything, I'll tighten my own hold on whatever it is I have. But, but Chris invited me. I didn't send for Tom. And uh, the first thing that happened was pretty good. He told me I, I like I mean, I like defiant people. I was, I, I was working with a guy a while back, and I, uh, he, he committed a pretty serious crime. And he said, uh, I didn't do it. And I said, well, okay. He said, no, I mean, I didn't do it. I said, all right. He said, I'm serious. I didn't do it. Well, I knew he did it. And I said, well, all right, since you, you know, you've called this meeting to order, I said, they have pictures. He never missed a beat. He said, they might. In this day and age, those things can be altered. And uh, so the first thing Tom told me was pretty good. I like people like that. The first thing he told me was, I'm going to have a pink shirt on. Now, there's a little bit more to it than this. These are my words, not his. But he said, I wear that to aggravate people. So I'm okay. So we get in the car. And we're coming around the airport, and I'm, I'm pretty sure he's going the wrong way. And uh, I didn't want to say anything. I don't know him very well, and he's talking away. And I, I, so I said, Tom, I said, it's possible here you're going the wrong way. And I said, he, he never says anything. He keeps going. And then I saw the sign, you know, the overhead signs telling you what. And I, there's nothing on this side. So, you know, I'm fast, so I said... I said, Tom, there's no nothing on the back of that. And I said, you're going the wrong way. And I swear, I'm not, I'm not trying to embellish this. He looked over at me and he said, I'll tell you this, I ain't turning around. <laughs> and I said, I wouldn't either if I were you. So by the time we got out out of the airport, I think you know four or five, six people had honked at us to try to, try to alert us. So. I thought I'd take a shot at him, but he didn't get it. I said, well, Tom, I said, I was rather impressed you didn't honk back at him. You know how it aggravates you when people honk at you to register your disapproval? And he said, oh, no. He said, I know when I'm wrong not to do anything like that. <laughs> so, but anyway, he's been a very gracious host. We've had a good time. And I'm going to have to get out of here, though. Uh, you folks eat a lot and often. And uh, I'm an old bum. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was homeless. I, I was at a thing a while back, and we had really overate a lot. I was with my sponsor. And uh, so we were, we were at this, in this restaurant, and this lady said to us, she said to me, she said, are you going to eat again today? And I said, I am if I get a chance. <laughs> I eat every chance I get. So I appreciate the food and the hospitality and the invitation. Um, this never gets any easier. I don't care how many times I've tried to do it. This is not the first time I've tried to do something like this, but it never gets any easier. One reason, I suspect, is it's awfully intimate. Um, you have to undress yourself. Um, our literature explains that it, I'm not a word technician. I'm not shooting anybody. But our literature says that we're supposed to say what we used to be like, what happened, and what we're like now. About 80% of the time when somebody says what they're going to do, they say they're going to talk about what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like now. I would submit that changes the whole thing. 
what Alcoholics Anonymous does is bring change about in us. Uh, I don't know many people, including me, who haven't gotten more problems after they got sober. I mean, it just makes sense. The first time I heard anybody explain it, the majority of alcoholics who take their own life do that sober, that made perfect sense to me. I always knew, I, I think I came to Alcoholics Anonymous running away from what I had. And I like that definition of surrender. It certainly fits me. Surrender is what happens when what you, what you might get starts to look better than what you got. And, and that was certainly true in my case. So um, I've got a sobriety day. I've got a home group and a sobriety day. I'm a member of the principals group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Raleigh. Um, we're one group that meets two times a week. We're a three legacy group. On Tuesday nights, we have a closed meeting. First Tuesday night of the month, we study the book Alcoholics Anonymous. The second and third Tuesdays, we take topics out of AA literature that are common to all alcoholics in their quest for uh, sobriety. And on the fourth, we do a tradition in conjunction with the month, so we circle the field. And I think there's five, four, four uh, months that have five Tuesdays. So if there's a fifth Tuesday, we study Alcoholics Anonymous history, believing that's as important to us as an organization as my history is uh, to me individually. History's fascinating. I heard uh, the great, uh, he's, 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 he's gone on now, but there was a great war historian named Stephen Ambrosi. And he, he told a story that when he used to, um, when he was in university work before his books started selling and became famous, he used to teach freshman history classes and he said that people, students would often tell him, I hate history. And he said he had one answer, it was always the same, that's impossible. You might hate the way it's presented or whatever, but history, I mean, if, I mean, if you'd never been drunk, history was what makes today relevant. If I'd have never been drunk, there wouldn't be any reason to wake up and thank God for the gift of sobriety. I might thank God if I were spiritually inclined for a nice day and, and, and the gifts, but there, there'd be no, there's no relevance there. So, so our history um, is fascinating. And, and what the wise man say if, if, if we forget our history, um, with our illness, then we're getting ready to experience it again, and, and uh, that's the thing I don't want to happen. And then on Thursday night, we have an open speaker meeting, and um, I try to always remember that Alcoholics Anonymous meetings aren't AA as such, they're just one thing we do in AA, that Alcoholics Anonymous is a way of life, and I suspect in Alcoholics Anonymous today, this is just my take on it, we're a little bit over-identified with meetings. Meetings are fundamentally important and they're integral to what we do, but they're just one thing that we do. And um, Alcoholics Anonymous is a way of life. It's a written program passed on through an oral tradition. I'm, I've always went to a lot of meetings, but Alcoholics Anonymous is a way of life. And um, I suspect if you looked, looked at meetings, the purest form of meeting we have is a speaker meeting because one alcoholic talks and other alcoholics listen. And if you ever wondered about our founders, and the, the divine inspiration that was passed on to those men. If you really wonder, if any of us stop and think, what does a newcomer need to know? What any of us needed to know when we come to Alcoholics Anonymous is they need to know what we used to be like, what happened, and what we're like now. Now, they probably don't believe that, but that's where hope was born. And speaker meetings have always been my favorite meeting. Now, not being speaker now, but speaker meetings, are, I mean, there's nothing like just sitting in a good speaker meeting and, and, and sitting back. Um, I was sober, um, my sobriety date is May 26, 1975, so I was sober 14 years when I went to North Carolina, and when I got to North Carolina, to the best of my knowledge, I'd never been to an AA meeting 
where you go in and sit down in the meeting and then the chairman opens the meeting and asks if anybody's got a problem. And then somebody brings up a problem and then 15 or 20 amateur brain scientists take a crack at that problem and then you leave there goofier than when you came. I've never seen anything like that. I, I left the meeting, I said, something ain't right here. I was fine an hour and a half ago. I'm, I'm sick now, I need help. And while it may be true, there's no such thing as a bad AA meeting, I'll go this far. There are meetings that'll make you look for other meetings. So I'll, I'll guarantee you, we don't do that. Uh, we, don't, we don't ask if anybody's got a problem. And I, I'm a great believer that all newcomers and everybody's problems have to be dignified and taken seriously. I'd be dead. I'd been dead a long time ago if the only place I would have got AA would have been an AA meeting proper. But I don't think that meetings should be tied up with that. I mean, that's what sponsorship is for, and that's what home groups are for. My experience, for what it's worth, is when you find really good, principled sponsorship and home groups, and you don't see meetings like that, because that all of that stuff with newcomers is being taken care of in coffee shops and on the telephone and riding back and forth to meetings. So. If you, we've got some big problems in Alcoholics Anonymous today. I'm not a prophet of doom. I'm as enthused and as happy as I've ever been. We've got alcoholics. I mean, there's so many alcoholics. We've got them bunched in Raleigh where I live. You don't even have to hunt for them. They're, they're, they're bunched just waiting for people. Uh, but we've got some big problems and we've got some great opportunities. We've got places in this country where singleness of purpose is not even a nodding acquaintance. I go up to the, uh, the Northeast twice a year. I go up and I, I won't even tell you where it is, doesn't make any difference. But I go up there twice a year, sponsor a guy up there, and they have me up there twice a year. And, and they've got stuff up there that's almost unbelievable. I'm not, I mean, it, you know, I, I don't think we're ever, as far as I can tell, the, the, whole, the whole singleness of purpose argument has never changed since I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's always the same. And I don't think as a, I don't think as AA members ourselves we're ever going to get anywhere with that singleness of purpose until we ourselves learn that it's not an indictment against the drug addict. Our singleness of purpose is so that no alcoholic can be kept out. I spent a weekend with Freddie Aquino. He's dead now, but he was the, he was a chairman of the World Service Board of Narcotics Anonymous. And they wrote a position paper asking their members what terms to use to use the terms of Narcotics Anonymous, not to use the term. They acknowledge the great um, debt that they owe Alcoholics Anonymous. So, so they're concerned about some of those things too, but up there in the Northeast where I go, they had a large anniversary. They had a member of Sex Addicts Anonymous as their speaker. And I think we're probably gonna be a little less charitable about some of those other things than we are um, some of the stuff we've had about singleness of purpose. But if you, if you just think about it for a minute, if you don't believe in singleness of purpose, then you'd almost have to believe we're just a group of confused people that periodically get together to make ourselves feel better. So what we come together is around the illness of alcoholism. If you, because when you separate that out, a gathering of Alcoholics Anonymous has all the other differences in it that any other group of people have. We're a couple hundred people or 150 people in here tonight. We've got everything in the world in here that the rest of society has. So what we come together around is the illness of alcoholism and the family illness. So no identification, no Alcoholics Anonymous. No 12 steps, no Alcoholics Anonymous. But we live and die on identification. I'm going to cut right to the chase on the, on the illness of alcoholism. Now stick with me on this story. I haven't lost my mind, okay? I'm a pro wrestling fan. I've been going to the professional wrestling matches since I was a little kid. I've been going so long that when people find out you go, 
they'd work it into the conversation to let you know it was fake. And the only thing I could ever figure with that is they must have thought I didn't know that. Now, today, everybody goes to the professional wrestling matches. I was, in the last little bit, I was out at the RBC Center in Raleigh. They had almost 20,000 people at a live WWE show. They have it on college campuses, on TV, four or five nights a week. But you know how professional wrestlers, their ears will be all twisted up. I think they call it cauliflower ears. They look like the used erasers on a pencil. Well, recently we had a young man come to my meeting, my group, and uh, I don't know, maybe he's 30 years old, 35 years old, and his ears were all twisted up. And I didn't want to do it, but after the meeting I said, man, what happened to your ears? And he said, well, I was drunk the other night, and the telephone rang, and I picked up my wife's iron. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, if you've been as drunk as I've been for as long as I've been, something like that could certainly happen. So I said, what happened to your other ear? He said, they called back. <laughs> and, uh, uh, that pretty well explains alcoholism. If you, uh, a few years ago, my wife and I were in California, and we went to, uh, she, my wife pulled these free tickets up off the computer, but we went to see uh, Everybody Loves Raymond and Will and Grace and Still Standing and Dr. Phil. We went to a live show. You know that background laughter you hear? Well, that's just a bunch of people like us at the show while they're, while they're actually putting it together. And I think if, if someone would have known how to do it, they could have made a sitcom out of my life. And, and it probably would have been about as ridiculous as everybody loves Raymond. I mean, it just, I was doing the best I could, but you couldn't tell by looking at it. So uh, I come from a long line of alcoholics. Um, you know how people in meetings say all the time, you'll hear people say that, uh, um, well, it, it, it's usually somebody in their family or somebody they're close to, and they're explaining their behavior, and they're obviously saying that person's an alcoholic. Like they're talking about their mom or their girlfriend or their children or whatever it is, and they're, they're, they're really laying out that that particular person's an alcoholic, and then they'll stop and they'll say, but I can't call them an alcoholic because they never said they were. Here's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to take a chance on those people in my family. <laughs> now, there ain't many of them said they were alcoholics, but if, if they're not, they'll do till some come along who were. Uh, I come from, a, a, I mean, generations of alcoholics. My dad was a horrible alcoholic. He, uh, they probably wore out one car taking him around places trying to get him to quit drinking. And he wasn't any closer to believing he was an alcoholic at the end of his life than he was the first time somebody told him that. So if there's a magic word in Alcoholics Anonymous, for my money, that word would be surrender. Because it happens through a series of collapse. We collapse and surrender can move in and then the grace of God and then we power up with the second step and move forward. But if no surrender, I mean probably no long-term sobriety for an alcoholic of my description. I think it can, it can best be said that Alcoholics Anonymous works best as a court of last resort. You could almost say that's probably the only way it works. But both of my grandfathers were alcoholics, all my uncles on both sides. Um, and I come from, like, I come from, I'm gonna, I'll try to straighten this next statement out, but I come from a long line of hard working, uh, there's big money in my family spread out from me. I didn't, none of it was close to me, but it's like middle class, hard working people that are honest and, and believe in right and wrong. Now, that, with that said, there, there's a kind of honesty that won't move alcoholism. It won't get it. It's not deep enough. 
I think what the illness of alcoholism requires is honesty at a cellular level, where we live, what the speakers have been talking about. It's, it's got to be much... I was introduced to a kind of honesty, and, and I was also introduced to hard work. Now, I was introduced to these things, they just didn't take on me. But uh, I was introduced to the kind of honesty that if you go in a store and you buy something with a $10 bill and they give you change for a 20 you give it back. I was introduced, and I'm not from the farm, but I'm from farm country. I'm from outside of Omaha, and farmers work really hard. They have a real uh, righteous sense of right and wrong. And if somebody can't get their crop in the field because they're sick or something, then the other farmers will come together and, and do it for them. And my uh, grandpa on the farm was like that. He believed in right and wrong. He, uh, he worked hard. Grandpa had a stream on his farm. He literally would not go fishing on his own property without a fishing license. But grandpa kept about that much whiskey in a bottle to get his right mind back the next morning. So there's, a, there's honesty as good as far as it goes, but it, but it won't move alcoholism. That, that's going to take a little bit more. So I came into the world. You know how you've heard that deal about little kids have to be, uh, little kids have to be taught how to hate? I, I've always, I, I don't know if that's true or not. It doesn't seem to be true in my case. I came into the world afraid and angry, the best I can tell. And the um, fact is, if anybody asked me um, the, the, to describe the active illness of alcoholism, this is just my take on I was talking to a guy that he knows a lot about alcoholism. I don't know if he's a, he's a priest and a really good guy, but I was telling him that for my money, I, I would call active alcoholism fear. And he said, well, I would have thought you'd call it resentment. And I, that's what the book calls. That's the closer the book comes. But fear seems to me to capture what the active illness of alcoholism was. And I just came into the world afraid and, and mad. And I can remember to this day walking home from school as a little kid being afraid and trying to figure out what I was afraid of. And, you know, when you apply logic to a spiritual or an emotional or a mental problem and it doesn't move, then it's worse. I mean, a lot of times I could prove to myself logically there wasn't anything to be afraid of. Well, I hadn't been to Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know the cancerous nature of fear and resentment and, and all of those things. So I also came into the world, best I can tell, knowing how to read. When uh, my kids are all grown and my grandkids, uh, my, my youngest granddaughter is um, three and a half years old, and, and, uh, but my six-year-old granddaughter is reading right on big time, but I, I don't ever remember when other kids were learning how to read, like, I, I already knew how to read. I knew how to read really good, I knew how to read out loud, and I knew what words meant. So I was fast-tracked in school. Now, here's what happened. When I got into the fourth grade, they introduced a thing called long division, and they might as well have been talking to me in Swahili. I mean, it didn't make any sense to me, I couldn't make any... Uh, I've never learned how to do long division to this day. In fact, I've gotten kind of arrogant about it. I, I really began to wonder what anybody would want to know how to do it for. But uh, in the fourth grade, they tried to teach me how to do long division, and I, I, they, they, they wouldn't believe that I couldn't do it. And they took me to the principal's office. There was my teacher, the principal of the school, and there was another lady in there, probably some kind of a counselor. And what they wanted to know is, is why I wouldn't do this long division. And I think it was the principal, it's been a long time ago, but I think it was the principal that said, we know you can do it. And you know how somebody will say they probably don't even believe it, but they're trying to get you going, they'll say, you're smarter than I am. I think it was the principal that said that. And I wondered myself why I couldn't do it, but I couldn't get them to believe it. And then a little bit, I began to, to, to all of that stuff started 
I know now, I mean, life is lived forward, but it's understood backward. That's one of the reasons we tell our story. I don't live in fear of the first drink, but I don't ever want to think that Alcoholics Anonymous is a snake bite kit not to drink liquor. I want to understand and be very aware of the gifts, and neither do I ever want to think that this is the way it's supposed to be. I want to, I want to run, Alcoholics Anonymous seems to me to be a very good place to run a little green. What I've noticed is the smart ones don't stay here quite as long. But anyway, I, I, it became, I had a terrible time learning how to tie my shoes. I couldn't learn how to tie my shoes. My dad had to help, help me how to tie my shoes, and it took forever. If I ever learned anything like that, I had to memorize it. I just didn't make any sense to me. I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one in here that's ever been in a laughing academy. But you know how when you check into a, a nut house or a, a psych ward or something, I don't want to brag about these things, but I'm actually a ping pong champion VA psych ward, Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, I only lost one game of ping pong the whole time I was in there, and then I had my headband sent in. I remained undefeated after that. But you know, when you check into those places, they give you those tests, like you put blocks into, or they'll give you numbers that are sequential. And trying to figure out, all they're trying to do with those kind of things is figure out how you abstract, like if this is this, this is this. And you know how little kids have starter puzzles? My kids are grown now, they're all in their 30s, but when I, when, when they were little, they had starter puzzles. My grandchildren would have starter puzzles. If I ever got a piece of the puzzle that fit, it was just, it just slopped in there. It isn't because I looked at it and it looked the same. And like a map, I hate to hear anybody say you can't miss it. I've actually been on a heavy highway, pulled in somewhere to take a bad pee, I've got back in the car and went the wrong way. I mean, I, and just because I can get somewhere doesn't mean I can get back. If I get a flat tire, I'm down until you get there. I mean, I can't fix anything. I sponsor a contractor and he swears I called him over to my house to change a light bulb. I don't think, I don't think that's true. I think what it is, is he was there anyway. And it was, and it was one of those high, those long tube ones. But I mean, I just can't fix anything like that. And then later, there was a, a head doctor in a in a nut house. He, I had kind of nature had kind of figured all that out for me, and I'd kind of figured out a bunch of stuff uh, with that. But what he told me, he said, "You're as smart as anybody else. You just need to stay away from anything mechanical." And uh, I said, "No, you won't get any argument out of me out of that. It just doesn't make any sense." But if you want to find, I mean, all they're trying to do with that kind of stuff is find out how you abstract. If you want to find out how I abstract, you just have to give me a family problem or a community problem. Because all they're doing with that is trying to, when you, when you, when you check into a, a laughing academy or something, they're trying to figure out, like, if you can do this, then is it naturally sequentially over here to this, this to this. And so I can do that with a family problem or a community problem or a baseball game or something. But if it's laid out like a map, it doesn't make any sense to me. So. When I was, um, I, I grew up in alcoholism, like I told you, I was a very frayed child, I was angry, and I was really good in sports. Here's what happened to me as far as sports go. I quit growing, I got a bad attitude, and I, and I started drinking. Now, I don't want to hit you with anything too heavy, but all three of those are going to put you down. You might weather one of them. And when I was a 15-year-old kid, now, I can track my active alcoholism from age 15 to age 25, almost 26 years old. Now, I drank before this, 
But by age 15, I'm, I'm moving along pretty good in my alcoholism, and I got a job as a play, at a place called the Pathfinder Hotel. Remember the, some of the old crank elevators? They had a, a bellboy drove them. I had a job running an elevator, and I could drink as much on that job as alcohol I could steal. Now, it wouldn't be honest or fair to say I hadn't had any experience with girls. I'd had a little bit of experience. I'd even had a little bit of luck. Like right in my age group, or maybe one year down, I think I'd even went one year up one time. But I'm a 15-year-old kid on this job, and I got my first older woman. Now, she said that she came in from the farm to look for a job, and she was 18. Now, I don't know how old she was, but she was way past 18. I was sponsoring this little kid. He got sober when he was 18, and he was in this class. And he told me, he's just trying to get sober, and he was in this class. And he said, on the break one night, he said, this woman came up to him. I never know how to describe this, but she off, I just say it like this, she offered to handle him and she wanted, she said, are you interested? He said, yeah, I'm interested. So he said, she told me she was 27. Well, when we saw her, she might have been 37. Anyway, all I'm saying is, is here when I started drinking, now you have a 15 year old child moving along in alcoholism. I couldn't have got through my own name in an introduction to a girl and going to meet her parents with a gun at my head. You know how, uh, crazy those years are, and I heard all my life about being a kid, it's the best time of your life. The problem with that, I've never run into anybody that agreed with it. It seems to me it's a horrible time of your life. I watched my own children at age 15. I have a 15-year-old granddaughter now. She tells my daughter things like, on top of everything else, Grandpa pulled up in that car and picked me up. But, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, people, I don't care what kind of car people drive, but a 15-year-old does. That kind of stuff. They feel like the, the world's looking at them. Well, I... I I mean, I couldn't have done anything like that, but here's what would happen. I'd drink two or three quarts of beer and something like would happen with that older woman at the Pathfinder. Or I'd drink two or three quarts of beer and I'd go down to where the girls were and the next thing you know, I'd be out in the country with one of those sweeties in the back seat of the car. I'm telling you, you don't give up something very easy that moves you from lockjaw to orator. And, you know, our literature says that it's something to the effect that most alcoholics have to be pretty badly mangled. And the reason for that has been well talked about this weekend. I mean, alcohol was a solution. It was an absolute solution. It moved all of that stuff out of the way and made things okay. And so in that respect, alcohol and Alcoholics Anonymous have done exactly the same thing. They've made it so I can live in the world. And if I had to describe what I thought alcoholism was, what that means to me is I can't live with drinking and I can't live without drinking. That's what I think alcoholism is. It makes perfect sense to me that the majority of alcoholics who commit suicide do that sober. I think you could argue we're drinking ourselves to death, but that's a whole nother thing. No hope drinking, no hope not drinking. And while I believe all 12 steps are of equal importance to a well-ordered life, they're not all of equal importance at the same time. And the first step is a terrible place to stay because what you've admitted is you're screwed. I mean, you can't make it drinking, you can't make it not drinking. You've got to get off of that to the second step, which is a step of hope. And that happened for me the very first summer that I was sober. I didn't know it then. I wouldn't have been able to put it in those words. But anyway, I was a long ways from that. I went off in the military when I was a child, barely old enough to get in there. I paid a dishonest recruiter. Uh, he told me to get as much money together as I could. He would get me in there, and I got together $65 and gave it to him. And I also cheated on the test to get in the military, and you can imagine my consternation. I got out of basic training, and they told me I was going to Wichita Falls, Texas to work on airplanes. 
Now, I told you, I can't fix anything, and I mean, it's... So, what, here's what happened. I got there, and, and um, you'd really have to wonder about their, uh, their thoughtfulness and something like this. But they got us all together, and they said, this weekend, you can go downtown Wichita Falls, Texas, anywhere you want. But there's one place you can't go. You can't go on Flood Street. And the reason you can't go on Flood Street, it's off limits by order of the base commander. Well, just like Tom was sure, I got drunk and went down on Flood Street to find out why they don't want you down there. And, um, of course, I got kicked out of that school, but I wouldn't have been able to do that school no matter. They could have assigned, they could have assigned one person just to try to help me to be a mechanic, and it, it wouldn't have happened. But anyway, I got kicked out of that school, and long story short, they sent me to Arkansas, and this is in the late 1960s, and civil rights movement is on, and it's just, I mean, it's like putting a hog in a corn patch. I just loved it. And it was a different time. It was in the 1960s. The first thing that happens to me, I get arrested for minor in possession, then I get arrested for public intoxication, then I get arrested for drunk driving. And uh, they wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to have all that happen, and now the military deals with that stuff in a different way. We've got a lot of military stuff in North Carolina, but I had signed some paperwork that said I wanted to go to Vietnam. I couldn't even spell Vietnam. I loved Arkansas. But you know that deal, I mean, I've never been able to describe it very well, but it's always that thought, if I can get somewhere else doing something else, then everything will be all right. And, I mean, there was no way for me to know that, I mean, water always seeks its own level. And if we can't find the people like us, we'll go out and hunt for them. I mean, what I was running was I was running away from myself. I can't tell you as a child how many trips I made to California. People where I'm from in Nebraska go to California to start their life over. And I, I mean, every time I got to California, there I was. Talk about being challenged directionally, I guess is the way they would talk about it today. I was hitchhiking to California one time. I got a ride. I, I was in a place called Little America, Wyoming, and a guy picked me up and took me to Portland, Oregon and dropped me off. I'm now further away from California where he got me. And those kind of things happen time after time after time. But anyway, in January of 1970, I went off to Vietnam, and it was a pretty crazy time in America. And I'm just drunk. I'm just, I'm drunk all the time. I got real long hair, and I got it all pulled up under a fatigue cap. I got a seven and three quarters fatigue cap. My fighting weight's about 120 pounds. A couple people could have got in those fatigues with me if it would have got cold. And um, I get an appointment with a squadron commander. You just got to imagine what this must have been like. I, th I saw this guy later in the United States, but he's so new in Vietnam, he's still wearing stateside fatigues. He was a Mormon guy, really good guy. I get an appointment with him, and I go in there, and I take my fatigue cap off and report into him just like you're supposed to. And essentially what I told him was that if he didn't get me out of there, I was going to start picking people off with my M16. Now... That wasn't true. I didn't have an M16. I didn't know how to assemble or fire one. Because when we went through the training, I gave them stolen food for all of that. I didn't even get my shots to go to Southeast Asia. I just got something signed off by passing out stolen food. Well, he put me on an airplane and sent me to Cameron Bay to talk to a psychiatrist. And I was down there about 10 minutes talking to that psychiatrist. And I, I looked across the thing. I saw on the bottom of a piece of paper, he said, return to duty and signed it. He thought I was trying to get down there. People were trying to get put out of the military and get home. I wasn't trying to get out of the military. I was just drunk. And um, so anyway, finally my time ended and I came back to uh, I came back to the United States. I'm going to have to hurry this up. Tom took a lot of time. I'll tell you up here. Uh, 
I came back to the United States and, you know, I'm going to fast forward just a little bit. There's a place in the book Alcoholics Anonymous that says that the drinking career of every alcoholic has had some stuff happen that's hilarious and has had some stuff happen that's tragic. I would submit that most of alcoholism certainly ain't hilarious. Most of it ain't tragic. It might be tragic to the sufferer and to their family, but the events are just nasty. And they're more of an erosion of what might have been. I, I mean, I, just the car wrecks alone should have got me. I was in two car wrecks in one night one time. Uh, but I had some stuff happen. I'll, I'll tell you one story that, uh, it's funny now, I think. Now, I, I've told this story a lot of times. You know how when something happens that's, that's kind of embarrassing, you're glad your sponsor's not there, even if you haven't done anything wrong? I was up in Rhode Island. I, my sponsor was there. And... Um, this, there was a lady that took offense to this story. I'm going to tell you this story. I think it's workable. It's just a story, right? I got a, I've got a wife. I've got grown female daughters, and I have grown, I have grandchildren that are girls. I got most of that stuff straightened out years ago. This is just a story. But anyway, I went in a bar one night outside of Spokane, Washington. I had this woman with me, and uh, how would I say this? She was not uh, ugly. However. She was old. And I told this story one night in Decatur, Alabama, and there was a lady right down the front row said, you mean mature, don't you? And I said, no. No, I don't mean mature. But anyway, the, the story, the, my, my sponsor's Tom Ivester. He was supposed to be here. I know it's, I'd, be, I'd be disappointed if you got me and you sent for Tom. I mean, what would you be sitting out there and think, well, I sent for a man, I got a boy. <laughs> it was aggravating to me too, but me too. I mean, there's nobody could fill in for Tom, but Tom was there. And when that lady didn't like the story, when she walked off, Tom said, don't listen to that junk. If you want to tell that story, tell it. So anyway, here's the story. I went in a bar with this woman. A couple hours, we were very drunk. I'm driving a large white car. A couple hours later, we come out of the bar. We get in a large white car and leave. The only problem is it ain't the same white car we drove in the bar. You, you couldn't make something like this happen. In those days, I never took the keys out of the car. So something like 2 o'clock in the morning, we're arrested. I'm charged with auto theft and drunk driving. They put that woman and I in the same jail cell. That's the only one they had. Highway patrolmen arrested us, but they took us to this little, little cow town out in the country. And uh, they put us in there. They put that woman and I in the same jail cell. And then this highway patrolman and this little night marshal that worked there went to the try to figure out what, what had happened. I was trying to figure out what had happened. I could see the drunk driving. It was a little hard to figure out how you got arrested for auto theft. took me a long time to figure out what had happened. I took off in somebody else's car. I guess I left that car we were driving for him. But anyway, the next morning they let us out of jail. And you know how you tell something so many times you can't be sure it really happened? Now, every part of this story is true. The only part I'm uncertain about, I think they even gave us the beer back. I didn't get a drunk driving ticket. The only thing I got a ticket for, apparently in those days at least, it was against the law for leaving a motor vehicle unattended with the keys in it. That's what I got a ticket for. But I'll never forget this if I lived to be 100 years old. We were standing out in front of the jail the next morning. And you know how they talk to you. The patrolman was talking to me like this. And he's saying that she has to drive, you're still too drunk. And I'm sure I was telling him, you're right, boss. And uh, so she was walking off. She's probably about to the front door. And this woman had, and the patrolman standing up in front of the jail with his hands on his hips. And this woman's walking off and she's about to the front door. Now she had on these little bitty white shorts. And about half her butt was coming out the bottom of those shorts. 
And I don't know why I did this, but he told me to get going. So I started walking, and I got about halfway to that door, and I turned around and stopped. Not a good thing to do, but I just turned around, and I looked back at the patrolman. And when I did, our eyes locked. You know how your eyes are locked with somebody in a restaurant or a meeting or library or whatever? Our eyes just locked. And I saw that patrolman, he went. And I, I thought... I wasn't able to do it, but if I would have, I would have said, those are my sentiments exactly. And that woman had about the same thing on her hands with me. I mean, it was just, it had to be, uh, it's just, I don't know what it could have looked like to a sane person. And those kind of things, not that now, but those kind of things happen time after time after time. Now, I'll tell you a tragic story. In 1971, early 1971, because of alcoholism and hatred, I was involved with some people that were outside the long arm of the law. We'll just leave it at that. And uh, because of alcoholism and hatred and because of the way I was living, I was a good bit responsible for the death of another person. Now, it wouldn't be honest to say that didn't bother me, but it didn't bother me like it was going to come to later. I think what I did is I just went on to a lower level. You know how you just keep going down and down? For years, I heard people talk about the progressive nature of the illness. And when I talked about progression, what I was talking about is how the drinking gets worse. You know how you see somebody come back in and they're, they're you know, now they've lost their family. Or then they come back in and they've lost their job. No teeth and then, you know, no place to live, whatever it is. That kind of progression is what I was talking about. But there's other progression that goes with alcoholism. There's hatred, there's fear, there's isolation, there's loneliness, there's blaming. I don't know if the loneliness of alcoholism is worse than other kinds of loneliness, but it's different. Because it ain't got nothing to do with the proximity of people. I was alone in my own family at Christmas time. I was alone as part of the United States government. I was alone as an active duty GI. You can be alone in AA if, if you haven't gotten across that divide. My sponsor, who died a number of years ago, used to talk about laying in bed next to a woman he loved, and he thought loved him. And they would lay in bed with their legs touching, neither one of them being able to say a word because he'd drunk, been drunk again and screwed stuff up. Other kinds of loneliness, my father-in-law was in a nursing home for a long time in Raleigh, and I would go out once a week and have dinner with him just to spell my wife. I broke up that loneliness when I walked into the nursing home. Anybody can do it. The loneliness of alcoholism is different than that. But anyway, there was a very kind doctor who kept me from getting kicked out of the military. Anybody that knows, been in the military, knows there's two people that are packing tremendous power in the military, a chaplain and a medical doctor. And he kept me from getting kicked out of the military. In the summer of 1972, I got out of the military. My plan was, was to come back to Nebraska for about a week and then return to Washington and fall in full-time with these people that I'd been involved with. I've always been grateful that my alcoholism, I was just too far gone. By the time I got back to Nebraska, I was a responsibly recovered member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, by the time I got back to Washington State. So anyway, within six months of the time I got out of the military, I was homeless and I essentially stayed that way until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I'm going to try to uh, get into AA here real quick. I work with a lot of newcomers in North Carolina, and I know that new people aren't having any trouble getting respectfully drunk in North Carolina. I'm all for drinking. One reason I'm for drinking, that's where we get our members. Uh, so I'm all for drinking, but there's one big difference between drinking in North Carolina and drinking in Nebraska. There are probably 25 bars in Nebraska to every bar in North Carolina. 
There are bars everywhere in Nebraska. I'm going to see my sister soon in Nebraska. She lives in a town of 263 people with three bars. But anyway, the town I sobered up in is about 25, 30 miles outside Omaha, and there are bars up and down both sides of the street. Chapter 5, where I got sober, had a bar on both sides. And you could sit in there and listen to the meetings, and you'd hear the country music coming through the, the walls. It didn't make any difference. I, wasn't, I couldn't go in either bar anyway. But right up the street on the other side was a place called Bill's Bar. And if you've ever seen one of those bars, I mean, there's probably some people in here drinking one. Have you ever seen one of those bars where everybody in there was drunk? You could back a farm truck up to Bill's Bar and put everybody in there and cart them to AA. You wouldn't have missed a person. Bill had made his fortune in the garbage and septic tank business. And um, he had bought that bar as a toy for his drunken wife, Phyllis. We had some colorful characters in there. We had a guy named Vibrator Hartman, and uh, Vibrator got drunk one New Year's Eve and burned up in a fire. We had a guy named Rodney Montaigne, and uh, Rodney got drunk and got in a fight with a wheel guy in a wheelchair and tipped him over. Uh, the way Rodney described it, he said, he hit me a good one, Steve, but I tipped him over before they got me out of there. And you know, Rodney would get drunk, and his mouth would move, but no words would come out. We had another guy in there named Leonard Larson. Now, Leonard had no and he didn't have any neck. His head set right on his shoulders. And what Leonard would do is he'd get drunk and crawl around on his hands and knees and lift bar stools to perform feats of strength. He, he, I, he used to get me to jump off bar stools onto his stomach to perform feats of strength. There's a lot of old laws on the books in Nebraska. Leonard went out in the country one day and shot a cow. And he stumbled out to the country road to get somebody to help him load it in his pickup truck. He waved down an off-duty deputy sheriff. He, he got one to two years for that. I don't know if anybody in here has ever been to Blackstone, but Blackstone's a roundup. It's one of the oldest ones in the United States. It's in Virginia, Black, uh, Blackstone, Virginia. And I've only been to it once, but they, they've had, it's like been going like 56 years or something. They have two a year, and they put you up on a stage bigger than this, and so I was, I was a Saturday night speaker. My wife was with me, and she they had a place for her to sit down there. I, it was about two minutes to eight. I'd already climbed up on the stage. So she calls me down there. And it's all I've just learned over the years, it's best, if any way possible, to do what she says. So she calls me down there, and she leans over real conspiratorial-like, and she said, I don't want to hear any one word out of you about that guy that ain't got no neck. And I said, What? And she said, I said, have you lost your mind? And she said, I mean it, not one word. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, look at that guy over there, he ain't got no neck. <laughs> but anyway, there was, right about the time I got out of the military, there was two brothers came into Bill's bar named Billy and Tommy Walker. And uh, when I first, they got, they, they showed up about the same time I got out of the military. And when I first met Billy Walker, he told me he was just out of the 101st Airborne. Now, I knew that day that was a lie, and it's been, whatever, 40-some years now. I still know that was a lie. There are symptoms to these things. I spent most of my adult life as an employee of the Department of Correction in administration, and I can tell you there are symptoms of those things. But where Billy Walker was coming from was a penitentiary somewhere. Now, I'm a beer drinker, but I'll drink anything. And there was literally a time when I could drink beer for 24 or 30 hours. I'd be drunk, but I could remember stuff, I could talk to people, I could drive a car, but you let me take one drink of whiskey or one drink of Mad Dog wine or whatever, I just never remembered. Well, when Billy and Tommy Walker came to town, now Billy Walker drank dry gin and chased it with squirt. And Tommy Walker drank bar whiskey and chased it with water. Well, when I started drinking with them, I started drinking that dry gin and chasing it with squirt. Now, this is the kind of brains you had in Bill's bar at this time. Bill's Bar is actually where the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, a little bit later, was start to move in my life. 
Billy Walker told me, he said, there's a couple things you got to know about the way we're drinking this gin. He said, always get the gin in the shot glass. Never breathe when you're drinking it because it's nasty and it'll make you shiver. And it, anybody knows if you've ever drank any dry gin and you've drank it sober, you know he's telling the truth. You have to be about half drunk to drink that stuff. It'll just send chills through you. He said, as soon as you drink it, chase it with a squirt. I said, okay, Billy, that, that's fine. The second thing threw me a little bit. He said, the other thing you got to do is you got to start to use a lot of pepper on your food. Now, we weren't eating much in those days anyway. And I said, what will that do? And he said, well, he said, the way we're drinking this gin, it can hurt your liver. But if you put a lot of pepper on your food, it'll counteract the damage. <laughs> now, now, that's the kind of brains you had in Bill's bar at that time. And it just shows that God can do his work, Park Avenue or Park Bench. The other reasons I like to drink with those guys, I, I've seen a lot of guys in my life could get a lot of women, but I've only seen two that looked like they attracted women, and Billy Walker was one of them. And I didn't, I, I don't know if I was aware of this at the time, but I must have just been drunk, not stupid, because my game plan was that I'll just stay here with you and possibly get in on some of the overflow. And the other reason I like to drink with those guys, now, when I got sober, I went up a pant size a year the first couple, three years. I needed to. Billy Walker never was any bigger than I am right now, but he would attack people. He looked like that greyhound dog on the bus. He'd just fly on people and knock them out. So anyway, fast forward, Thanksgiving season, 1974. I just back from California one more time. I'm in Bill's bar. There was a lady and her boyfriend invited me and another guy to their house for Thanksgiving dinner. Um, I'm real sick. I'm that kind of sick now where I remember stuff, but I don't know if it really happened. I don't know if it happened yesterday or last week. And the guy that she invited, uh, that they invited to, uh, us to their house, I've been in a terrible tractor-trailer accident. Have you ever seen one of those accidents where everybody should have got killed and nobody got a scratch? It was one of those. But anyway, Libby's boyfriend was an over in Nebraska. They called, they were bull haulers, and they were on that 48 state. They drove tractor trailers, and they were on that 48 in Canada. And her boyfriend was one of those guys. But anyway, she had a great, big, beautiful Thanksgiving dinner. She had her kids in. I wasn't able to eat. I wake up. I'm drenched in my own sweat, but I'm freezing. Every time I go to the bathroom, blood comes out. I'm vomiting. Blood's coming out. I wake up. I think I'm going to be able to get a little bit of beer down to start to get well, taking longer and longer. I get sick again. Everything's running together. And I'm in that state. You know what I'm talking about where I've been looking for a way out for quite a while. I had some plans. One plan, I was going to marry a rich woman. Even as confused as I was, I was pretty sure that that wasn't going to, it didn't look like that was going to happen. I had a plan to get a job. I'd sit and I'd think day after day, tomorrow I'm going to go look for a job. I'm just going to sip a little bit of beer and then I'm going to go look for a job. That made sense day after day. It's kind of like saying I'm not going to drive a car, drinking. That makes perfect sense till I start drinking and it doesn't make sense anymore. And the other plan I would submit was a lot more likely I was going to kill myself. But anyway, um, that's how it was at Thanksgiving season 1974 and Libby had a talk with me that went very much like this. Now, Libby was not a pristine woman. This was a rough bunch. Sal, the truck driver, he wanted to marry Libby, and he took her across the river to meet his mom. And Libby told me that when Sal went to the bathroom, his mom pulled her into the kitchen and said, Honey, if you know what's good for you, you'll get as far away from that drunken bum as quick as you can, because he'll ruin your life. That was his mom talking. So you know this is a rough bunch. But Libby... Libby was not a pristine woman. She changed men about like people change clothes. But her heart was as big as the whole Midwest. And this is what she told me. It's funny how, you know, time is hard to talk about. It's hard to capture. 
I would look at sobriety probably now as a lot of long days and fast years. I go home at night sometimes, I can't remember the morning, but the last year will be a blur. Pain's hard to talk about, pain's hard to capture. But anyway, Libby had a talk with me that went very much like this, and some of it I remember, it's like it's indelibly etched in my heart. She said, I've been around alcoholics all my life. Now remember, Libby and her boyfriend were both permanent party in Bill's bar, so it's not like she's talking to the, um, I mean, it's not like she's, that she's not an alcoholic herself, I guess is what I'm trying to say. She said, I've been around alcoholics all my life. I've been married to two alcoholics, but I don't think I've ever seen anything like you at your age. She said, there's a man here in town who helped my last ex-husband. If you, and my last ex-husband's now been sober one year, he's got a full-time job, he's paying his child support, he's doing really well, and if you want me to, I'll call him. So on November 30th, 1974, a guy by the name of Bob Brannigan made the first call that was ever made on me. He spent all Saturday after, he was a rabid, big red machine football fan, he didn't do the football game, he made the 12-step call. He spent all Saturday afternoon with me, I don't remember very much of it, I remember a few things. I remember that he had a wife and five kids, and he said he'd lost that. He built a house. He was a sheet metal contractor, and he so he had all the contacts. They built it themselves, and he said, I lost that too. And then he said a strange thing. He said, I should have lost it. I thought that was strange. And I remember asking him the question. I said, how do you get the willpower to not drink? And he said, I look on willpower a little bit different than you do. But what I think willpower is is the way you take that drink, knowing it's going to come back up. That's what I think willpower is. I remember that. And I remember asking him, how long since you drank? And he said, if I can make it till September, it'll be 11 years. Well, he just celebrated 50 years last month. And I suspect that the reason he celebrated 50 years of sobriety is because he kept doing the things the rest of the 39 years that he was doing with me. But he carted me off to the state hospital the next day. Like I said, I was 25 years old. We picked up another guy that was 25 years old that's now dead from drinking. And... Um, on the way, I was really sick. I needed a drink really bad, but I didn't get one. He bought me a carton of cigarettes and a can of 7-Up. And I laid that great line on him. You know what it was. I'll pay you back. And he, he, I mean, he was, you know how guys would hold the steering wheel like this, and he was driving one of those big, long, blue Oldsmobiles. They were about a half a block long in those days. And he looked over at me, I suppose about as long as a guy could take his eyes off the wheel. He looked over at me, and he said, that ain't the way this works you'll be expected to help someone else when you're able to. And I'd like to think that's what I've been doing all these years. Well, anyway, that was, the, that was uh, December 1st, and my sobriety date's May 26th, so I didn't, you know, I woke up on May, I was six months between being introduced and getting sober. I woke up May 26th at 2 a.m., Memorial Day weekend, it was a Monday, and uh, I had two bottles of dark port wine, but I couldn't find them, I'd hit them for myself. And I didn't know what had happened. I saw a guy a couple days later. That's the last drink, pray God, I've had right up to this moment. I asked a guy a couple days later that I'd been drinking with. I said, what happened? And he said, well, we were riding around with Richard. And, and uh, uh, you wouldn't shut up. He said, you know, Richard's nerves are bad. He told you three or four times to shut up. So you wouldn't shut up, so he hit you. I said, he hit me? He said, yeah, he hit you really hard right in the mouth. And I said, well, what did I do? He said, you started crying. <laughs> Well, anyway, Richard's dead now from drinking. The other guy's dead from drinking. Here's what happened. There's, I told you there's a lot of big money in my family and a lot of responsible, hardworking, decent people. My great aunt was 75 years old, and she sent for me. My great aunt was a very dignified, elegant old lady. She spoke three languages. She spoke English, obviously. She was a lifelong student of Latin. She was fluent in German. And um, 
She also spoke Spanish. You don't speak Latin, I guess, so that's three languages, and she studied Latin. She sent for me. She just lost her husband of 50 years, and she said, what I want you to do is come here and live. I have someone in mind who will take you to Alcoholics Anonymous if you will go. That happened within the first few days, maybe a five, six, eight days, ten days. I have no idea. And I began to go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, and it was a wonderful way uh, to sober up. I didn't work much the first year. I got a job doing lawn work. And then they made a guy. They told this guy had a junkyard. I, they never told me this, but, you know, you can figure it out. They, told, they made him give me a job in the junkyard. Terrible place for me to work. He'd tell me to go get a carburetor. I might bring a fender. And, uh, they, had, they, took, they had to take me off that job and put me on, uh, he had me cutting weeds. And they took me off that. I didn't burn up the weeds, right? It was, it was terrible. Here's what happened. This just got done happening to a guy that, um, that I sponsor. He, he did a long prison term. He got into AA while he was in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've, I've never seen one single person that put the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous first in their life return to drink. It's impossible to put the principles first in our life and drink too. Dr. Bob said it very well. He asked Dr. Bob one time, do you think you'll ever drink again? He said, no, I don't think I'll ever drink again as long as I live unless I quit doing what I've been doing. So I've never seen anybody that put these principles first didn't come out just fine. But the story, I'll, I'll tell you a couple quick stories. I'm going to shut this down. This guy I was telling you about, it was in my home group. After he got out of the penitentiary, he did every scud job known to man. I mean, he was, he was working at a gas station in the ghetto at night. I'm afraid to go down there during the daytime. He was cleaning up construction sites. He got a job at Perkins on weekends as a busboy, 50 years old. He did every scud job known to man. And then one day, a guy in our home group asked him, he said, how would you like to come to work in my corporation? The people that work in the, in the factory will show you how to run the machines. Well, it wasn't charity. He was able to do the job. He just couldn't have got the job, right? Pete wouldn't have gave him that job on a bet if he hadn't known him. So while Alcoholics Anonymous is not a job service, things always ride to the rescue for the man or woman who puts these principles first. And that's what happened to me. A guy I knew in AA um, was an executive director of the court system, state probation, and, and um, he told me, he said, I'm going to um, have you come to work in the court system. He said, what I want you to do is stand down and be quiet about this because they're going to tell you that you can't be hired because you don't meet any of the qualifications. He said, and it's going to take a while, but I can do that. And that's what happened. In January, I didn't get any education. I didn't do anything. I mean, one day I'm this. The next day I go to work, I'm an officer of the court. That was in January of 1977, and I really never looked. I never left that work. That's how I got to North Carolina in 1989. Tom brought me to North Carolina to work in the prison system. But I just tell you all that to say that Alcoholics Anonymous practiced as a way of life is more powerful than the illness of alcoholism. And that AA is made up of a series of many parts of, of a whole, and that the whole of that is, is the 12 steps. Meetings are just one thing that we do. In closing, um, I've had, I want to just finish up around this. I've had two times in my sobriety, like I said, pain is awfully hard to talk about. I've had two times in my sobriety, at eight years and at 19 and a half years, the best way I can capture what this is like is it made being homeless seem like kid stuff. It felt like I was being choked spiritually. And when Bill wrote about it, he wrote about it, and he called it the dark night of the soul. And this is what I, I mean, I absolutely learned that Alcoholics Anonymous is more powerful than the illness of alcoholism. 
I didn't see any way out of that. I mean, it, it, it was the worst kind of pain I've ever experienced. But what I did is I just did the simple things every day that I was able to do. Sometimes I wasn't able to do much. And what I learned out of that is, I mean, all it is, I say all kind of in quotation, but I think it was just a grinding down. It was a deeper surrender. That eight-year thing had to do something to do with that death and some old leftover like uh, Brenda was talking about, about that hatred. And I think that stuff had to be ground down. I think my ego had to be ground down more and there was a deeper level of surrender. My life changed as much after that eight-year thing as it did from drunk to sober. My life got so much easier. I don't think the job of Alcoholics Anonymous is necessarily to give us an easy life, but neither do I want to be running uphill every day. The road narrows here and I'm not interested in climbing up the hill. I mean, um, I'm interested in trying to practice these principles to the best of my ability, being responsible and reaping all the benefits Alcoholics Anonymous has to offer. And then I had another one at 19 and a half years. Both of these periods lasted from six months to a year. And then when they kind of eased out of that, my life got a lot freer and a lot easier and a lot gentler. And I know that I was just different. Life was a lot easier. It was a lot smoother. And it was just not, it was not, it was not as vile and um, all of those things. One thing Alcoholics Anonymous cannot do, it cannot shield us from pain. I don't know many people that don't get more problems after they quit drinking. It just makes sense. I sensitize and take my place. Anyway, um, I think Tom cut into the time quite a bit. And I'm about out of time. I think the thing said we were going to get done at 6.15. Um, so we're right about, uh, we're right on time. I appreciate um, very much um, being able to be your guest this weekend. I don't take that lightly. Uh, I don't think Bill Wilson's the one that said this. It's the one I read what he wrote. But he said that lest we ever forget and get over uh, what, however he talked about it with our great gifts, let us never forget that Alcoholics Anonymous is made up of a society of collective failures transformed by the grace of a loving God. And I don't ever want to forget that that was true in my case. So I appreciate one of the kindest things I think we do with each other is we listen to each other and we take each other seriously. When a new man or woman comes in, we begin to treat them at the level of what they can become. Hence, the last thing I'll say, Bill Wilson talked about that, the intercourse of the heart. Intercourse in the dictionary says to communicate. What comes from the heart reaches the heart. And that's what we have here, is the language of the heart. So I thank you very much for my life. God bless you. Thank you.